This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. Hello, aviators. Welcome to the Flight Time series by Hangar Talk and Flight Training Magazine, where we bring you the exciting world of aviation. Each show, we will revisit a popular Hangar Talk interview for the flight training audience. I'm Jennifer Non, Senior Manager of Media Relations and Public Affairs at AOPA. This episode, we speak with flight instructor Max Trescott. Max is a former National Flight Instructor of the Year who now teaches exclusively in the Cirrus SR-22 and SR-50 Vision Jet. He's the author of multiple books on advanced glass cockpits, and he hosts the popular Aviation News Talk podcast. AOPA senior content producer Ian Twombly caught up with Max to discuss how he got into aviation, what makes a great instructor, and much more. You can find out more at maxtrescott.com. Flight Time is brought to you by AOPA. Go to aopa.org for more, and if you're not a member, make sure to push that join button while you're there. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. All right, Ian, take it away. All right, so um, Max, welcome. Thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Tell me, I, I think you know we introduced you a little bit. Flight instructor of the year, really into teaching in advanced cockpits and that sort of thing. So give us just a quick rundown, uh, your, your bio. Oh, sure. So I started flying when I was 15, got my license when I was 19, spent about uh, 25 years working for HP, uh, which most people probably know for all the printers they've uh, sold, and uh, got my CFI the last few years I was HP, and I've been teaching for about uh, 16 years, and spend most of my time in glass cockpit uh, aircraft because that uh, complements the uh, the G1000 and Perspective book and the, the WASP book I've written. So, you know, it kind of flows back and forth, the book and the flying, you know, they both keep each other current. Cool. That's great. And uh, you're based out west. Yes, I'm uh, operating mostly out of the Palo Alto airport, so uh, Silicon Valley. And I, I spent uh, about 30 years on the East Coast, and all I can say is we have more VFR days out here. So that's, <laughs> that, that helps uh, when you're teaching flying. Yeah. Now, you, you grew up not too far from me, I guess. Um, you're a, a, what, a Pennsylvania native, is that right? That's true. Yeah, I grew up uh, in northern Pennsylvania, Wellsboro, home of the Grand Canyon State Airport. Yeah, that's uh, boy. So talk about VFR. That's <laughs> that's an understatement because that's like definitely one of the cloudiest areas of the country. 
Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I remember they said the 220 cloudy days a year, I think, is what wow. they said. Wow. And so where did you learn to fly? Was it out there or out west? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And wow. you know, it's kind of funny. My instructor was uh, Dick Johnston, for whom the airport's down named there. And he was a uh, Pennsylvania instructor of the year at one point. Oh, cool. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah, so um, the Flight Instructor of the Year, that it was 2008. Talk to, about, like, how does that work? What was the process kind of leading up to it? What did you feel like you would accomplish to to deserve that award? And then what have you what have you done since? What does it mean? So uh, the process is there are, what, 60-some FISDOs scattered around the, uh, the country, and each of them uh, makes a nomination uh, for uh, uh, four different uh, awards. There's a Mechanic of the Year, an Avionics Specialist, a... Uh, fast team representative and a CFI of the year. And then those uh, nominations go to the uh, division of the, the regions. I forget how many regions there are. I think there are about nine. So uh, the Pacific West region uh, selected me. And then it goes to a committee, which is actually outside the FAA. It has FAA representatives on it, but it's a, an industry uh, committee, which uh, then selects the, uh, the final winners. And you know, for me, the, the most important thing was just using it as a platform to uh, promote uh, folks becoming a CFI. Uh, I, I use it every time I get a chance to talk about it. I use it as an opportunity to, to mention that we definitely need more people who love aviation, who want to teach flying, and uh, you know, encourage them to do what I did, which is even if they're you know, out there working and doing something else, you know, go ahead and work on your commercial and work on your uh, maybe ground instructor uh, certificate and then flight instructor uh, rating. And you're going to find that it's just a heck of a lot of fun to uh, pay it forward, to uh, you know, teach others uh, you know, what, what you become good at and you know, help, help this industry become uh, safer. So, all right. So you just touched on something I, I did want to talk about. So we'll get right into a controversial subject, this idea of kind of an adult, um, maybe has a different profession, moves into flight instructing, somebody who's a flight instructor as the profession versus your, you know, your so-called time builder. A lot of people say, you know, they, they make generalizations about this. They say, well, you know, young CFIs who just want to get to the airlines, they're, they're terrible. And, you know, you got to go with an older CFI who's more experienced. What's, what's your philosophy on all that, having come from the career changer? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think those are generalizations that may be true some of the time and certainly are not true uh, all the time. I think there are a lot of great uh, young CFIs who are out there building time for the airlines and who are enthusiastic and, you know, care about their other uh, clients and, you know, may uh, connect with uh, younger people as well. Um, and there may be some who just kind of feel like, oh, my gosh, this is drudge work and, you know, yeah. I can't wait until I, you know, get to where I deserve to be. And gosh, you know, for those folks, um, I, I, you know, I hope you'll put your heart into it as best you can because we, you know, I, I think attitudes sometimes come through. And, you know, people mm -hmm. will kind of get if you're really there for them or if you're really just there for you. So, yeah, I'd encourage everybody to, you know, be there for your client. Be there to uh, give the best possible flight instruction you can, regardless of, you know, what your ultimate career goals are. Do you think there's a difference, um, obviously, in mindset, you know, when somebody has that next step in mind already when they start this this instructing job? Do you think there's a uh, something that changes when you become a career CFI where you look beyond kind of the, the necessary duties of a CFI, keeping the students safe, instructing, you know, um, getting them through the course into a more sort of holistic view of you're um, providing a service. These are customers. There's a certain level of professionalism that goes with that. I mean, what, was this something you kind of knew all along or does it take a while to, to figure that part out? Well, the last uh, job I had in Hewlett Packard was sales, and we were, you know, not not selling little things. I was selling half million dollar computers, and you know, when when you're doing those kinds of things, the the focus truly is on figuring out 
what are the customers' needs? Because if you don't uh, understand those, you don't have a prayer, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, getting them to be interested uh, in your product. Uh, so to me, flying is kind of the same thing. A flight instructor mm. needs to understand what is their uh, client's unique needs. You know, everybody who comes to uh, flight school or a flight instructor is going to be different, is going to have different needs, is going to have different uh, challenges. And it's really up to the uh, the CFI to kind of figure that out. You know, what's what's unique and special about this person and, you know, how can I best uh, help them achieve uh, their objectives? So you've, um, you've decided to focus primarily on advanced cockpit kind of stuff, um, advanced aircraft. Why'd you go that route? Probably because it was just of the greatest interest to me. Uh, I was teaching for about three years on the ground uh, round gauge uh, aircraft, and I was totally shocked in uh, 2003 when the Avidine glass cockpit came out in uh, the Cirruses. Uh, shocked because I never expected to see uh, you know those kinds of electronics in GA aircraft in mm -hmm. my lifetime. Yeah. My my background is in electrical engineering, so I love the technical stuff anyway. And so when that stuff uh, came out, I just gravitated to it. In fact, I changed airports to uh, to get to an airport where there were more of those aircraft available for rent. Wow. Now, you know, what one, I guess I'll, I'll call it downside or potential downside or, or at least perceived downside of glass and advanced technology in airplanes is that it loses some of that old sort of swagger romance side of flying. Do you agree or do you think that Eh, that's not even really the case, and we can still have those things together, and they still work together. Oh, I think that they definitely uh, can work together, and even folks that are trained on glass cockpit probably still fly a round gauge aircraft uh, some of the time. You know, I think uh, the advantages of of uh, glass really shine more in uh, longer trips and uh, IFR and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're flying 30 miles for a hamburgers, it's like, eh, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure the glass provides that much extra benefit. But you've you decided to focus on it so much that you wrote some books about it. You mentioned those kind of at the beginning. And, you know, I've, I've got one here in front of me, and this is the G1000 Glass Cockpit Handbook. This happens to be the third edition. But you're talking like 300 pages of information about the G1000. I, I can't imagine trying to uh, undertake a project like that. So why why did you decide to do it? Oh, it's really funny. I went out to uh, the Cessna factory back in uh, 2005. I was with a gentleman who just bought a 206, and we were in what was then a week-long class to learn the G1000. Mm. And I uh, fortunately took a lot of notes when I was there, and I also um, had my cassette recorder, and I taped some of the sessions. And when I came back, I was kind of thinking, wow, why does this seem so hard? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I literally remember thinking, gee, I, I think I'm a kind of a smart guy. Why, why is this so hard? And after about two weeks, I I thought, oh, okay, I think I know why. I think there you know, there just aren't great uh, training materials uh, available. Now, that mm. was, uh, what, 10 years ago, so there were a lot more training materials available. And I remember thinking, boy, someone's going to have to write a book about this. Oh, rats, I guess that's me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh. it, was a, it was a fun project, and uh, I got through the, uh, you know, the first draft of it literally in just a couple of months. And wow. the book grew a little bit uh, in the second and third edition, so it was a, a little bit shorter when it first came out. Holy cow, that's amazing. Um, you know, just to get through that much technical information that fast. But I guess, like you said, I mean, that's your background. It's, it seems like what you're interested in. So maybe it wasn't a slog, but oh my gosh, I, I'm, you know, I can't imagine sitting down and having to write through this kind of stuff. It's amazing. <laughs> well, I can tell you this. I certainly enjoy being in the cockpit flying a little bit more than I enjoy sitting yeah. behind the computer uh, <laughs> typing these things out. Yeah, right. So as far as you know, people who struggle to learn this, these advanced tech sort of things, uh, whether it's the Avidine or Garmin or whatever, um, do you think it mainly comes down to this idea of what's available to them and the training or are the systems, I mean, is there a, 
a human interface element that Garmin and Avidyne have missed? Um, are, mm. they, are they unnecessarily complex? Wow, I think you may have hit the uh, you know the heart of the issue there. Sure, I think that um, if uh, Apple were in the business of uh, designing uh, glass cockpits, they probably would be easier to use. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's really at the, the heart of the matter. Um, you know, one of the things Garmin uh, did when they brought out the G1000, which which was good at the time, is they used the same programming keystrokes that were used for the uh, the Garmin 430. So folks that were familiar with programming that could move right into the glass cockpit. Every keystroke uh, that they would use for uh, entering a flight plan and modifying it was going to be exactly the same. On the other hand, you go back to the uh, the 430. That was introduced in, what, 1997. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, the user interfaces there were a little more uh, clunky. Um, you know, Apple, what, came out about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, things change with time. So, yes, the interfaces on consumer products are, are, are definitely better. And I think that, uh, you know, for example, I just flew a Cirrus uh, G6 on Tuesday, which has the, mm-hmm. the latest version. And there's no question it, it's a little bit easier than the original G1000. In in what way? What did you think about it? Oh, wow. It was absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, So Cirrus uh, introduced in 2008 what they call the uh, perspective version of uh, of the Cirrus. And that you could think of as an enhanced uh, G1000 with uh, different hardware and some additional features. And the the G6 has really just taken that uh, one step uh, further. I mean, one of the big differences, for example, versus the original uh, G1000 is the alphanumeric keyboard. And with Mm. this uh, version, they've actually gone to a QWERTY keyboard, which is awesome. So if you know how to touch type and you're used to using a computer, you're going to find exactly the same keyboard layout for the first time in a Cirrus. Though come to think of it, I think R9, which was uh, an avionics set available Cirrus, uh, had, yep, I think that had uh, the QWERTY keyboard as well, but that uh, didn't sell, uh, you know, too many uh, copies. That was uh, from a third-party kind of retrofit for, uh, for Cirrus. But uh, they've done a lot of little things that, uh, you know, fixed uh, things that were annoying in the past. You know, it used to be you'd, you'd fly to an airport with a flight plan, you'd shut down, and as you shut down, you remembered, oh, rats, if I had only remembered to save that flight plan, yeah. I could invert it, you know, for my flight back. Yeah. Uh, this The new G6 actually saves that flight plan on, on shutdown, hmm. so it's there for you uh, when you go back, which is, you know, pretty handy. They've done some other really neat things uh, where you could now put a map in place of your HSI, so that gives you, uh, you know, a great view right there. Some simple things, and this is something that was done in R9, when you're uh, dialing up something on a comm frequency, it'll actually display the name of the facility. So if you're on Palo Alto ground, it says, you know, Palo Alto ground. Nice, yeah. That would save me from many, many flip-flop mistakes where I just called the same frequency over and over again, expecting to hear a different person on it, so... (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and there's something related to that as well, too. When folks call up uh, for flight following, you know, they're at some random point in the sky. My observation is that people push the button, ask for flight following, and then start to think what their position is, and they just kind of make stuff up. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so you really got to think about that before you push the button. But uh, with a G6, uh, you can look over the left side of the uh, PFD, and it tells you, you know, where you are. Mm. Uh, for example, on my flight, it told us that we were in the some portion of the ground, I guess it said, you know, by the terminal uh, at uh, Palo Alto, but, you know, in the air, it would tell us uh, what airport we were close to. And wow, you know, suddenly something is, uh, you know, simple as that just uh, became uh, automatic. Hmm. Uh, walking up to the aircraft, um, we have uh, keyless entry, which is which That's is really kind cool. of fun. Yeah. And when you uh, when you when you click the button to unlock the aircraft from you know 20 feet away, it illuminates uh, some tube lighting which goes all along the full width of the uh, the wingtip. 
and that stays on until you're 200 feet above the ground. So that really nice. enhances the visibility of the, uh, the aircraft, you know, especially if you're flying at night. Yeah, very cool. So now with the Garmin upgrades, it brings to, uh, to mind a question. Are we making stupid pilots? Well, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I know both of us being instructors, it's like we would argue no, right? But um, but some people would that uh, that we're making, you know, rote button pushers, people who can't think for themselves, don't have situational awareness, uh, don't have stick and rudder skills. I mean, I, I think, you know, you would argue probably otherwise, but but why? I mean, how how can they not become complacent on the system when it's so capable? Yeah, so I think every time we introduce a new technology into any area in life, there's going to be a trade-off. And you're looking at a trade-off here, which is some things have gotten simpler, where now they don't have to know things that they might have known in the past. Um, and I think it's a challenge for us as flight instructors to make sure that they still know how to, for example, uh, you know, plot a line along a sectional chart and look outside the window and match what they see uh, you know, outside the cockpit to what's in, on, on the map. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very, very important to still have these, uh, these basic skills. On the other hand, I think uh, you know, for folks that are interested in learning the technology, it really does enhance the safety to have uh, all these things available uh, to you. And you've got to also ask, is it productive for a pilot to have to do things an old way that's harder and takes longer? And I would argue not, yeah. you know, to the extent that uh, you're not spending time uh, you know, running calculations and you can just look at a fuel range ring instead and see, oh, wow, I'm you know, getting into my reserve fuel. You know, that's time you can be more productively uh, you know, looking outside, be thinking about alternatives, be thinking about your plan B or your plan C. So in general, I, th I think uh, new technology is a plus, but we just need to uh, make sure it's not a crutch and teach people the old way as well. So what about this, the stick and rudder part of that? I mean, with um, maybe people's reliance on autopilot and manufacturers, in jets, it's always been the case, right, where um, autopilot becomes a part of the standard operating procedure, but now that's moving down uh, into our world. Do you think people's stick and rudder skills are eroding? I mean, are you seeing that uh, with your instructing? I, I think it's certainly possible. The, the one area that I see is, uh, on takeoff in larger aircraft, people seem to be not as aggressive on the rudder. You know, I, I, I think you know what all pilots do if they if they wake up uh, at night in the middle of a nightmare, they they scream more right rudder. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I think I can say more right rudder in five different languages. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of it should be question number one on the written exam for a, you know for a flight instructor. So <laughs> yeah, I I think that continues to be the uh, you know the the biggest challenge. So. Now, the flip side of this, uh, obviously, you mentioned the increased safety benefit and allowing you to work on maybe higher order skills, uh, which I totally agree with. Um, what about technology's effect on bringing people into aviation? Um, I mean, you're, you're, I think, a good example of this, maybe uh, where you're flying from. It seems like when people get out of their high-end cars, um, when they come out of nice home stores, when they you know do all these things, that there's a certain expectation they have of of where products are these days uh, when they pull out their phone, whatever the case may be. And a lot of times at the airport, that doesn't jive. Um, we see what's maybe closer to like a classic car show. But Cirrus, I, I think, and others, but but especially Cirrus, I think, has helped push that forward. Are you are you seeing that impact? Are you seeing that people are engaged in the products a little more and they're they're excited by them and and it maybe fuels their progress some yeah, I think you're seeing uh, both sides of the equation. Um, I think that uh, there are folks who are uh, very, uh, you know, cost-oriented and want the absolutely uh, least expensive way to get a pilot license, and those folks will gravitate toward 40-year-old uh, uh, aircraft and won't be concerned that the interior is uh, torn up and, you know, is ratty and it uh, doesn't look very good. And you have all other folks who uh, indeed may be driving, uh, you know, cars that are $50,000 and up and 
who, even if they don't expect that in an aircraft, they may have a spouse who has that expectation mm-hmm. uh, for an aircraft. Uh, and so especially for folks that might be uh, purchasing an aircraft, you know, that becomes a, you know, a driving decision. And yes, you're right. Here in Silicon Valley, we do have uh, a few people who you might say are interested in technology. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really kind of funny when I, when I look at my customer base, I would say, oh, only about 80 or 90 percent are, you know, engineers and <laughs> computer scientists. Oh, there is the occasional, you know, other person in there. Yeah. Um, He's just the I, venture capitalist, right? That's yeah, the, yeah. Well, yeah, 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 um, <laughs> and and I'm only exaggerating slightly, by the way. I mean, it is a it's a nerdy culture out here, <laughs> and there are going to be uh, folks, uh, you know, in that group that really get turned on by the technology. So yeah, we're a little bit different than, uh, you know, the the average spot that you'd find in uh, in America. Uh, so for example, the rental fleet at uh, the West Valley Flying Club has 48 aircraft. I think they're the second largest uh, flying wow. club here in the country. Holy cow! And uh, we just crossed the point where fully 50 percent of them have uh, glass cockpit which was quite a surprise to me. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. And so you, um, in particular, like to focus on Cirrus. I mean, I think, you know, uh, the cockpits being pretty much consistent across the line, especially in the past few years, that makes sense. And so you, you've branched out a little bit beyond your, you know, one hour of instructing here, or maybe taking a day rate or something like that. Now you're doing helping people transition into these airplanes and, and helping them find them really and buy them and, and picking them up and and then doing some type-specific training for them. Yeah, I, I focused on it because um, I, I had to, at one point uh, for an application count up how many different aircraft types I'd been, and I was really shocked that it was 85 because wow. I had not I had not purposely gone out you know to try, oh, let's fly as many different kinds of airplanes as possible. I know some people do that. Yeah. Um, and I've type-rated in uh, two jets. But I've always just loved the, the Cirrus the best. Uh, to me, it's just fun to be you know closer to the ground, watch the world go by, as opposed to be up at uh, flight level 410 looking at the tops of the clouds go by. Yeah. <laughs> I would just much rather you know watch the watch the uh, the scenery. Um, mm. So I trained at uh, the factory as a, a CSIP uh, Cirrus, a standardized uh, instructor pilot. Uh, and then the, there's a small core of us that have flown, uh, you know, more than a couple thousand hours and were the platinum C-SIPs. Hmm. So most of my time these days is uh, spent in the Cirrus aircraft. And I'm lucky. Uh, it turns out that uh, 10 of those uh, 48 aircraft I mentioned uh, are Cirrus. So we've, we've got a lot of them available for nice. rent. And we've got a lot of owners, so I end up working with, uh, with both of them. So, hmm. yes, uh, my favorite day is uh, you know teaching a new owner how to uh, learn to fly their, um, their SR-20 or their SR-22. And you know, here's the surprising part. You know, some of these folks are student pilots. You know, they're they're starting from uh, from zero. Wow. Uh, now, I will tell you, it does take a little bit longer to get your you know private license mm-hmm. uh, from scratch in an SR-22 than it would be in uh, you know uh, an aircraft more commonly used for you know for training. Um, but I think the uh, the benefit of of training from zero in these aircraft is that you know when you do get your license, even though it may be more than 100 hours, you're going to really know that aircraft incredibly well. And I've looked at uh, accident statistics over the years, and it looks to me like uh, once you get past 100 hours in any particular type of aircraft, the accident rate tends to go down. So I think the goal for anybody transitioning into any aircraft is to try and get you know 100 hours in there as safely as possible as you gradually expand the uh, the envelope. So I think there's a real benefit for you know folks who decide you know if if the Cirrus is the plane they think they want to be flying, sure, there's no reason they shouldn't go ahead and get it uh, you know as their uh, as their initial private license. So I knew that. People occasionally train in the 20 as a primary, but um, you're finding in the 22 is starting from zero. 
Yes, I've uh, wow. done a few of those. And again, we were talking about rudder before. Yeah, that's that's where it becomes a little bit more challenging than yeah. the, the 20 because the, the rudder forces are uh, significantly stronger. And, you know, it's, it's not that it's inherently hard to do. It's just that you have to uh, form that mental connection in your brain, which is that, you know, when the right hand is moving forward the, on the throttle, then the right foot needs to be moving simultaneously. Yeah. And if you can get people to kind of move the, the entire right side of their body together simultaneously, it's not it's not that difficult of a, a skill to forge. So you mentioned the CSIP program. Um, one thing, I, I've been really astounded at Cirrus and the, the way they've been able to reduce the accident rate. And, and I say Cirrus, but it's really in, in combination with COPA through standardized type specific training and this is something i think people are just kind of waking up to now in the in the lower end ga world obviously with type ratings it's like you're doing very intensive type specific training but we're just now starting to realize that it's like well especially if this is the airplane you're going to be flying a lot that um some type specific intensive type specific training is really valuable and and serious i think more than anything has seen this pay off um with just a, a really impressive lowering fatality rate yeah they have an incredible success story and there may be some people out there right now going oh no that's not true i remember cirrus had you know much worse uh, accident rate and that is true if you dial back you know 10 plus uh, years yeah. uh, when they first came out with the uh, the caps the, uh, the the parachute uh, people were not using it as often as they should. I think, uh, you know, as flight instructors, we learn that, you know, people uh, use primacy when they learn. They tend to remember the thing that they learned first, and that becomes the first thing they fall back to. And if you didn't learn in a Cirrus and you learn that if the engine quits, you should circle down and land in a field, then that's what you're going to think of, even though you have a perfectly good parachute handle, you know, sitting, uh, uh, you know, atop your head. Yeah. And when Copa, in particular, a analyzed all the accidents, what they found was that fully one-third of all the fatal accidents uh, in the Cirrus probably would have been eliminated if people had only used the parachute. And they started uh, working you know, in conjunction with Cirrus to get that uh, you know, message out to let people know that they really should should pull. Uh, they found that the uh, there was a crossover in the statistics. It used to be they had more fatal accidents than they had parachute pulls. Hmm. And then about uh, four years ago, the numbers started the reverse. People started pulling more often, and they now have more parachute pulls than they have fatal accidents. So the net result is that uh, the last time I looked, which was a few months ago, the uh, serious uh, fatal accident rate was running uh, somewhere around half, might be 0.6 of the fatal accident rate in other GA aircraft. And that's to me, that's a huge success story and yet, yet another good reason to uh, you know choose to fly these airplanes. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, I I was, I would say, ambivalent about the shoot. Um, you know, I didn't think it was uh, maybe as big of a deal as Cirrus markets it to be, but uh, but probably more effective than many doubters. And, um, and then we had this accident actually here in Frederick uh, a couple of years yep. ago, the midair. I mean, we're talking, it was below pattern altitude. And, um, you know, in one aircraft, unfortunately, everybody died. And in the other, um, in the Cirrus, both guys walked away completely unharmed. So because they pulled the chute. And uh, that was the helicopter accident that's currently in trial. Yeah, yeah. And it made me a believer in the parachute completely. Yeah. Well, I went to a seminar um, years ago, and I have to tell you, there were times when I kind of thought, well, maybe I would circle down. But there was a, a very high time uh, Cirrus instructor uh, there, and he went through an explanation that made total sense to me. He said, you know, essentially, 
you know, if you're uh, coming to land in a field and you're coming in at 75 knots and you hit something, wow, you're going to have a tremendous amount of, of force. And, you know, a force is a function of the square of the speed. So if you're coming down under a parachute, you're coming down at about 15 knots, which is one-fifth the speed, you know, that you would be hitting something if you were, you know, landing on a field and ran into something. Mm -hmm. So you take five and you square it, that's 25. That tells you the force is going to be 25 times greater when you hit something at 75 knots than when you hit something at 15 knots. So I was sold instantly. He basically yeah. said, you know, if my engine fails, unless there is an airport below me, I will pull the chute. And, and that became my new mantra on the spot because, uh, you know, the, the rationale behind it made so much sense. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, Max, so enough about Cirrus. I want to get into some of the other stuff you're working on. You mentioned the books. Um, you also are a host on Airplane Geeks. Boy, that has been so much fun. I've been doing that for almost three years. And, and i got to tell you, I, I look forward to that uh, recording session every week. We've got uh, several co-hosts. The podcast has been running for almost 10 years. Uh, we're up to, what, 460 episodes. Wow. It's my favorite time of the week is to get together uh, over Skype and talk with uh, my co-host about what's going on in aviation. Now, that podcast talks really about all aspects of aviation, hmm. airlines, military, general aviation. Uh, and I got so excited doing that. I just thought, you know, I'd like to do my own podcast. Yeah. And so I have uh, just cr uh, started a new one and just recorded the first episode. And the difference is it's going to be shorter, uh, going to target 30 to 40 minutes instead of uh, the roughly hour and a half we do with the airplane geeks. So that means it's for people with shorter commutes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> isn't that what a lot of people listen to, you know, podcasts while they're, uh, they're Absolutely, commuting. yeah. And it, it will focus exclusively on uh, general aviation. Uh, well, with unless there's just one story we can't resist, you know, talking about. But in general, it's going to be about uh, general aviation with uh, some international flavor, some uh, light sport uh, flavor. But also, and here's I think where it's going to differ a little bit from some other aviation podcasts. I'm going to uh, bring in tips, not just uh, general tips that apply to all pilots, but from time to time, just some down in the detail, uh, nitty gritty stuff about uh, GPS and uh, instrument flying. So wow. that's that's an area where I can take information from. Uh, uh, you know, the books and the uh, the online courses for the G1000 and IFR and kind of pull those into the podcast so people can get a, you know, a little reminder or refresher or, you know, a weekly uh, dose of that kind of information. That's cool. So, um, all right, give me give me a teaser and school me. What what uh, what's your tip on the first one? <laughs> okay, so uh, on the uh, the first one, the the down and the dirty one was answering a uh, a listener question, and now you kind of ask, well, how do you have a listener before the first <laughs> podcast? I wasn't going to ask, but yeah, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and and it turned out I had a question that came in on uh, Facebook, and I answered it, and I said, hey, I'm starting a podcast. Can I use this as the first listener question? So that person is now obliged to listen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's one way to build an audience. <laughs> exactly. It was a, a gentleman who was. Was, uh, flying uh, an aircraft into Idaho and he was flying an LP approach and he wasn't really familiar with the differences of an LP approach versus an LPV approach and when he uh, connected it to his autopilot he found it connected to a glide slope and that glide slope took him through the MDA, which we know is mm. a, a no-no, mm -hmm. though in this particular case it uh, got him into the airport because the airport was <clears throat> below minimums. Needless to say, <laughs> we don't mention the full name of this pilot uh, in the yeah. podcast, but yeah. it, it's an instructive way to talk about some of the gotchas that you can uh, find out there when you're Absolutely. using autopilots to fly uh, uh, GPS uh, approaches, especially the new LP approaches, which people are probably less familiar with. Yeah, wow, that is a good one. Huh. Obviously, well, some of us, I guess, know LPV, but yeah, LP, uh, that is that is a new one. I'm, all right, tell me. I'm thinking now, LP. What is the LP well, approach? You're going to have to listen. Oh, my gosh. 
<laughs> it's like a news cliffhanger. <laughs> I should give you the uh, the name of the show. It's Aviation News Talk. So if you go out to aviationnewstalk.com, uh, you can find the uh, the first episode of the podcast. And I just thought, you know, I years and years and years ago, I used to work for uh, a number of different uh, radio stations uh, before I got a real job. Hmm. No, I, I mean, I absolutely loved radio and worked for about five stations when I was in high school and uh, college. And uh, at one point I worked for CBS, which had the, the news talk station in uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. And I just like the idea of news talk and so aviation news talk uh, became the uh, the name of the show that's awesome great and then um you've also expanded the books to a little bit of online learning i guess i do i have uh, some online courses uh, years ago i had uh, cd courses and the the challenge with those was that uh, Ultimately, uh, people's software on their computer would change, and then they would uh, stop uh, working. Uh, so I went through uh, you know a couple times of having to replace CDs. Stopped selling the CD courses about two years ago, and uh, have now got them up online. In fact, originally I did have some online courses, but back in those days, the bandwidth was so uh, narrow it was hard to uh, you know get the large graphics through. Uh, but now, of course, the bandwidth is not that much of an issue. Most people have pretty good uh, internet connections, so they can find a link to the online courses if they want to learn about the G1000 and WAS and things like that uh, by going to the same website, the aviationnewstalk.com. And if someone is out there and has one of the old CD courses and it's not working for them anymore, uh, just contact me and we'll figure out how to transition you into the uh, the online course. Great. Great. Okay. Perfect. Well, thanks, Max, for uh, for stopping by. Great luck uh, with the new podcast and with everything else. Hey, thanks very much. And if anybody out there is thinking about uh, buying a Cirrus and kind of thinking about, oh, old or new, give me a call. I've got a complete list of all the differences, all the different model years. It could certainly help uh, walk you through that uh, decision. And they could just send me an email at uh, info at sjflight.com. And that's short for San Jose Flight.com. All right. Thanks, Max. Take care. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ian. 